Father, your word reminds us and encourages us to tremble at your word. Or even as we've read just now, we're reminded of the power of your word, the beauty of your word, and Lord, our inability to receive anything from your word unless you intervene. So Lord, we are dependent on you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us, illuminate us, Lord, because apart from you, uh, we cannot receive anything of eternal value from your word. Lord, as as, as your servant, as a preacher of your word, I am reminded of my weakness apart from you. And Lord, if anything of eternal significance is going to come from me, it's only because you use me as a tool in your hand uh, to do your work with your word. And so, Lord, I pray that I would remain dependent on you, uh, that you would fill me with your spirit, and that, um, Lord, your word would uh, be declared from this pulpit. Lord, you care more about your people getting your word than I do or anyone else does. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak in this moment, that you would do your work in this moment for your glory, for the building up of the body of Christ, and for our witness in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the concepts that we've talked a lot about as we've been in the Psalms is the idea of the good life. The good life. Uh, We've seen uh, the the word pop up from time to time, uh, blessed is, or it can also be translated flourishing is, and then make some statement about the good life, uh, describing the good life. This is a topic that comes up a lot in the Psalms and in wisdom literature in the Bible. And the good life is not just a concept addressed in Scripture. Humans have been seeking after the good life ever since the first humans heard the words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. We all strive for whatever our idea of the good life is. Uh, A person's idea of the good life might involve family, success, prosperity, purpose, meaning. Whatever that is, whatever a, a person's concept of the good life is, They're chasing after it. We are all shooting for our best life. And and, and not just something uh, aspirational, not just something for the future. In the present, we are all living the way we live because we think it is the good life. Even if you spend all day complaining about your life and complaining about your job and complaining about your spouse, You are complaining in some sense because you think the best way to live life now is by expressing how dissatisfied you are with how your life is right now. Uh, In some way, we are always trying to live the good life. So the question is, what really is the good life? 
Well, the Psalms have been offering us some suggestions. Psalm 32 said that the good life is a life forgiven by God. Psalm 33 said the good life is belonging to the people of God. Psalm 34 said the good life is for those who take refuge in God. It seems like the Psalms think that the good life is found in God. But is that really true? I mean, we said last week when we looked at Psalm 35 that you shouldn't become a Christian if you don't want people to hate you. To belong to God is to bring upon yourself the opposition of those who oppose God. So maybe the good life is found apart from God. Many people believe this. So much harm has been done in the name of religion. So much abuse has occurred within the church. Why do we need God or religion to live the good life? Most people are basically good. Let's just all try to do our best to be good neighbors, live our best lives without interfering with each other. You live your life the way you want to. I'll live my life the way I want to. We can live the good life and we don't need God to do it. David wrote Psalm 36 and gave it to the people of God to sing in order to remind them that abundant life can only be found in the God of steadfast love. He wrote Psalm 36, and he puts this song in their mouth to remind them of the godlessness of sin and the emptiness of that life. He puts this song in their mouth to remind them of the character of their God and the abundant life that is found in him. And he puts this song in their mouth to lead them to pray for God's steadfast love, uh, to lead them to hope in this God, despite the draw of sin, despite the opposition that they face as God's people. He puts this song in their mouth to remind them that abundant life can only be found in the God of steadfast love. And that's the message of Psalm 36 to us today. Abundant life can only be found in the God of steadfast love. We're going to see this truth unfold throughout Psalm 36 in three stages. If we are going to believe that abundant life can only be found in the God of steadfast love, first we need to understand the godlessness of sin. Understand the godlessness of sin. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 4. David begins this psalm by giving a portrait of wickedness, a portrait of the godlessness of sin. Look at verse 1 again. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. 
as we study this text, uh, you may have a footnote in your Bible uh, that indicates that the, the first half of that verse, especially that phrase, his heart, is kind of difficult to translate. It's hard to know uh, whose heart this verse is talking to, uh, whether or talking about. Is it talking about David's heart as the writer of the psalm, or is it talking about the wicked person's heart? Uh, so if we're talking about the wicked person's heart, then that first part of the verse is describing how the wicked basically lets the voice of sin get airtime in his heart. If we're talking about David's heart, the first part of the verse is saying that the sin of the wicked communicates a message to David. Well, either way, it doesn't really matter because what is true about the heart of the wicked and what is clear to David is this, the wicked person does not fear God. The wicked person does not fear God. He does not care about avoiding God's displeasure, as we talked about just recently, as a definition of what it means to fear God. He doesn't fear God. He does not care about avoiding God's displeasure. And this is the essence of what is wrong with all of us in our sin nature. We say, I don't care if I obey God or not. In fact, I don't really care about God at all. But not fearing God, not caring about avoiding his displeasure, that leads us to deceive ourselves about our sin. Look at verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So as God's creation, as humans who bear God's image, we all know that we are sinners against God. Scripture is clear about that. Even apart from having Scripture, we know that we are sinners against God. But what Paul teaches is that we suppress this truth and we fail to fear God as we should. So here's what it sounds like when we deceive ourselves. I can't admit that I'm a sinner because then I'll be admitting that I'm accountable to a higher power and I'm guilty of displeasing him and I don't have a way to make that right. If I admit that I'm a sinner, I'll hate myself. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I thought that I was wicked. So I've got to hide this from myself where it can't be found. So I'm going to flatter myself in my own eyes and convince myself that I'm actually a good person so that I won't hate myself. This week, I listened to Russell Moore interview author Tim Keller, and Tim talked about how he's tempted to do this in his own personal struggle with anger. He described how he has this tendency to push down his anger because he doesn't want to think of himself as an angry person. Uh, he said he, he, he has a tendency to numb himself so that he doesn't really feel anything because if he let himself feel that, he would say, oh, I'm an angry person and I don't like to think of myself as an angry person. So he, he, he hides his sin from himself. That's Psalm 36 too. Maybe you know that dynamic. Oh, I, I, I can't think of myself as a person who would do that. I can't think of myself as a person who would think that. I can't, 
I, I couldn't bear to live with myself if I wanted that. So I'm just going to tell myself that that's not really who I am. I'm, I'm actually a good person. We flatter ourselves in our own eyes so that we hide our sin from ourselves. Well, because the wicked person does not fear God and is not aware of his own sinfulness, his words, of course, will be sinful. Look at verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. The wicked person speaks wicked words. Words of gossip, cruel words, harsh words, words that are trouble. The wicked person speaks deceptive words, like slander, saying something that's not true in order to defame someone. Flattery, saying something that's not true in order to make someone think more highly of you, or just lies in general. The wicked person does not act wisely and does not do good. And this wickedness goes all the way to not just reactions in the moment, but plans and intentions. Look at verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The, The wicked person plans how he can do sinful things. After all, wicked person has deceived himself into thinking, I'm a good person. And so the deception continues in thinking that whatever I want to do in my goodness is a good plan. Not acknowledging the fact that these plots are trouble, just like his words are trouble, even though he's deceived himself into not seeing that for what it is. He puts himself, the wicked person puts himself on a sinful course, a, a path, a road that inevitably leads to sin. And every step along the path is sin. This is not just some moments here and there, some, oh, I'm not perfect, I do some things here and there. It is a path, a way, a lifestyle of not fearing God, a lifestyle of not rejecting evil. This is a portrait of what a wicked person is like. This is what comes out of an unbridled sin nature. When we fail to fear God, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're good. We sin with our words. We make sinful plans, live a sinful lifestyle. But the reverse is also true, and I think we need to consider it from a different angle. If we find ourselves on a sinful path, if we find ourselves using wicked words, deceitful words, if we find ourselves thinking highly of ourselves, struggling to see our own sin, telling ourselves that we're good, then we're not fearing God as we should. We're not acknowledging God and living to avoid his displeasure as we should. Yet, to come back to where we were at the beginning, those who live like this do so for a reason. They believe that the good life is found by not acknowledging God. 
Uh, They believe that the good life is found apart from God. And, And whenever we sin, this is what we're convincing ourselves of. Even if we don't consciously think that, whenever we sin, we're convincing ourselves that the good life is found apart from acknowledging God. It's better for me not to worry about God's displeasure. It's better for me if I don't think of myself as a sinner. It's better for me to speak words that get me what I want to get instead of following what God says about words. It's better for me to make plans that make me happy than to think about what's good or evil. Whenever we sin, we are convincing ourselves that the good life is found apart from God. But David is going to spend the rest of Psalm 36 trying to convince us that we're wrong. Not only do we need to understand the godlessness of sin, as we've already seen, we also need to behold the abundant life found in the loving God. Behold the abundant life found in the loving God. So after giving this portrait of the sin of man, in stark contrast to that sin of humanity, David then goes on to describe the character of Yahweh, beginning in verse 5. He says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Yahweh's steadfast love is his commitment to care for his own. It's his covenant-keeping love. His vow-keeping love. Another attribute of God here is his faithfulness or his steadfastness, his trustworthiness, his reliability. And David says that Yahweh's love extends to the heavens. His faithfulness extends to the clouds. In other words, we will never find the end of God's love. We will never reach a point when God stops being faithful. And so we see this God, we behold this God that David portrays before us, and and we just have to stop and ask, do you really want to live your life disregarding that God? Do you really think that the good life can be found apart from this God whose love extends to the heavens and whose faithfulness extends to the clouds? No, if we really understand how vast God's love is, how great his faithfulness is, we'll ask, how can I get in on a love like that? How can I be the recipient of that faithfulness, the object of his promises? Well, David goes on to praise Yahweh's righteousness and justice then. In verse 6, he says, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. He compares God's righteousness to, to a mighty mountain. Sure. Steady. Immovable. Strong. God's definition of right and wrong doesn't change with the seasons. His standard of morality doesn't buckle under strong winds. 
You can count on Yahweh's righteousness always holding up, never changing like a mighty mountain. God's judgments, David says, are like the deep sea. Paul picks up on this in Romans eleven thirty three when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The judgments of God are unsearchable like the ocean. The, the depth of wisdom that he draws from in making decisions and superintending the world is unfathomable. That's who this God is. And David says that Yahweh has demonstrated his character toward man and beast. He's shown off his love. He's shown off his righteousness in the way that he cares for all of his creation. In other words, we've all seen it. To some degree, we have all seen the character of this God whose steadfast love is beyond our comprehension. We've seen the justice and righteousness of this God. The question remains, how will we respond to it? Will we go on disregarding the God who cares for the world with perfect faithfulness and justice? Or will we turn to him for life? Will we live as if the good life is found apart from the Creator God? Or will we receive His love and seek His righteousness? David says this about God's steadfast love in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. David refers here to the children of mankind, which is a term that he uses to refer to all of humanity. And so as he uh, makes the statement here, what we need to understand is that anyone, anywhere, is invited to come and take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. All the children of mankind are invited. Anyone is welcome to come. Take refuge in this God. Trust in this God. Find life in this God. Find love from this God. Yahweh invites anyone and everyone to come and experience his steadfast love. David further describes the blessing for those who take refuge in God in verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Those who take refuge in Yahweh get to partake in the abundance of his house. They get to sit at his table. They get to enjoy all that he is, all that he has. And Yahweh lets them drink from the river of his delights. That word delight is Eden. To take refuge in Yahweh is to return to the paradise Adam and Eve experienced, enjoying God's presence and all of his abundance. This idea continues in verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. What flows from God is life itself, eternal life. 
Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Those who take refuge in Yahweh experience a life abundantly filled with all of his delights for all of eternity. God also provides light. On our own, we live in spiritual darkness, and we need the kind of light that Jesus described to Paul in Acts 26, 18. We need to have our eyes open so that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. This is the abundant life available in the God of steadfast love. And the fact is, we do not deserve this eternal, abundant life. We deserve eternal death. We do not deserve the abundance of his house and his table. We deserve nothing but condemnation. We deserve what is referred to in Revelation as the second death. The death after death. We all die once. But for those who die apart from God's steadfast love, after the moment that this temporary body dies, will come a second death. A second death that's not a moment. A second death that is a never-ending death apart from God for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. But the gospel according to Psalm 36 is this. The God of steadfast love has made a way for the children of mankind to take refuge in the shadow of his wings. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The God of steadfast love demonstrated this love by giving his son, Jesus Christ, to the children of mankind, to the world. Jesus, the eternal son of God, became a man. He lived his life perfectly fearing God, perfectly avoiding God's displeasure, and he died to take the punishment the death that sinners like you and me, wicked people like you and me, deserve. And he rose from the grave. Jesus is alive today and has become a fountain of eternal life for all who will take refuge in him. He has become a river of delights for all who would drink from him. All who trust in Jesus get to enjoy God's steadfast love. They get to enjoy God's steadfast love now, but we'll also get to enjoy his steadfast love in the future. So in Psalm 36, 8, David says that those who take refuge in God drink from the river of his delights. In verse 9, he describes God as the fountain of life and the one whose light helps us see. 
Well, those who will take refuge in Jesus for all of eternity will get to experience the delight described in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Abundant life can only be found in the God of steadfast love. So we need to understand the godlessness of sin. We need to behold the abundant life that is found in this loving God. And then in light of these truths, we need to hope in the steadfast love of God. Hope in the steadfast love of God. In light of the steadfast love of God, in light of the abundant life found in him, David leads the people of God to pray this in verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. He asks God to remain faithful to his people, to those who know him, who experience his steadfast love in a way that the rest of humanity does not. He asks God to do what he's promised he will do. He asks Yahweh to also act in justice toward the upright in heart. So remember, uh, we've seen already in the Psalms that the upright in heart are not those who are righteous on their own. They are those who are righteous because of God's steadfast love. Because he has set his steadfast love on them, he counts them righteous. And because he counts them righteous, they can ask to be treated in righteousness and not regret it. If Yahweh acts in righteousness toward the wicked who disregard him, that will mean judgment and condemnation upon the wicked. But if Yahweh acts in righteousness toward the upright in heart, toward those who are counted righteous, his righteousness means blessing and life for them. David continues his prayer in verse 11, asking for protection. He says in verse 11, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. He asks that the arrogant would not prevail. He asks not to be driven away. Uh, he, he, he is where he is. He is enjoying the blessings of God. He's enjoying the steadfast love of God. And he doesn't want to be taken away from this God of steadfast love. He doesn't want to be driven away. Because he knows that the good life is found in his God. Because apart from God, how does it end? Verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. 
evildoers who disregard God will fall. A life apart from God may seem like the good life for a time. But life apart from God will ultimately end in permanent destruction. For a time, the wicked get to experience the blessing of a world created by a God of steadfast love. But because they do not honor God as God, they ultimately receive the righteous judgment and condemnation of God. So what will you choose? Where will you put your hope? In what will you what will you turn to for the good life? Don't believe the lie that says the good life is found apart from God. Don't place your hope in convincing yourself that you're a good person and you're fine on your own. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're really not that bad and you don't really need God. Don't trust the lies that you tell to yourself. Trust God. Understand that the life lived disregarding God ends in your destruction and demise. It ends with eternal condemnation and death. So instead of trusting in your own goodness, instead of trusting in yourself, trust in the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is not for those who think they're good enough. God's love is for those who are honest about their own unrighteousness and their desperate need and dependence on Jesus for salvation. Don't trust your own righteousness. Trust in the steadfast love of God that sent the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross to die in your place and purchase eternal, abundant life for you. Trust in the steadfast love of God. And trust in the steadfast love of God even when the hand of the wicked would drive you away. Those who take refuge in Jesus will experience opposition from those who disregard God. We will be tempted to be driven away from God. And this can go one of two ways. On the one hand, the hand of the wicked driving us away can look like this. I trust in God for steadfast love and abundant life, but all I experience is suffering and persecution and misery. I experience not prosperity, but difficulty because I'm trying to honor God. And so maybe the good life isn't actually found in God after all. I'm trying to find it in God, but this is not the good life that I'm living. And that opposition from the hand of the wicked can drive us away from finding life in God. On the other hand, the hand of the wicked driving us away can look less like a push and more like a pull. You know, the people disregarding God seem to be doing pretty well. They all act like good people and seem to be plenty happy apart from God. Maybe fearing God isn't all it's cracked up to be. Just like the suffering at the hand of 
the suffering at the hand of the wicked can drive us away from God, so the allure of the hand of the wicked can drive us away from God. So when the hand of the wicked would drive you away from the God of steadfast love, understand the godlessness of sin, behold the abundant life found in the loving God, and hope in the steadfast love of God. Make Psalm 3610 your prayer. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. God, I need your steadfast love to preserve me. God, I need your steadfast love to protect me from the hand of the wicked. God, I need your steadfast love to sustain me. I need your steadfast love to remind me that the good life is found in you. I I need your steadfast love to remind me that even if life is hard now, it's the good life for eternity. Hope in the steadfast love of God. Abundant life can only be found in the God of steadfast love. So may we not seek the good life in anyone or in anything else. Even when in this present moment, those who disregard God seem to be living better than us, may we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and keep our eyes fixed on eternity. May we take refuge in the God of steadfast love even as we wait for the eternal life he has in store. Let's pray together. Father, I know the deceptiveness of my own heart, my own sinful nature, and I know that my brothers and sisters are the same, and I know that enduring is hard. And Lord, no one knows that better than Jesus. And so in his name, I ask that for my brothers and sisters and for my own heart, wherever we are tempted to believe that the good life is is found apart from you, I pray that you would identify that right now. Lord, I, I pray that we would lay ourselves bare before you and that you would point out to us, Lord, where we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we're good, where we flattered ourselves in our own eyes and we actually are living in sin, trying to find life where there is none, trying to find drink in a broken and empty cistern. Lord, I pray that you would expose that in us and Lord, that we would confess that and repent Lord, I pray that you've already used your word, but that even now, that you would do a work in hearts to open the eyes of our hearts to behold how good you are and how abundant the life in you is. Lord, would we be so drawn to the river of your delights 
that we can't fathom a life of godlessness. We can't fathom a life without you. Lord, I pray that where we are tempted to disregard your word, Lord, that you would remind us that your word comes from the mouth of a God of steadfast love. Lord, where we are tempted to go the way of the world and follow the allure of the world, Lord, I pray that we would remember that there is no delight like knowing you and experiencing your blessings for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that you would continue your steadfast love toward us. Lord, show your righteousness to us. Keep us in your love as we seek to find our life in you. Love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and respond to the word of God. It's true.